0: Uh, hi, I run a $3 billion company, and I only lose $252 million a year.
1: If you find the secret sauce...
0: That's a pretty dangerous bet.
1: Just two sassholes <laughs> sitting here talking about their investments. It's hard for me to feel sad for these landlords in New York. Just the, the true horrific nature of it. And, and I can honestly say that I'm, I'm still not ready to start calling Twitter X... <laughs>
0: is that an option because I just sometimes want to get out of my house.
1: We're going to need new terms. Those cuz that one just sucks. Hey guys, welcome back to the Result Junkies podcast. You know, in a in a turbulent economic time, we're seeing SaaS pricing increasing and I think Paul and I are both sort of looking at each other a little bit a little bit puzzled. And the the spread of office space availability continues to the other coast to New York now, and we're you know we're thinking about ways that that founders can take advantage of the decentralization that some large companies are putting together, Mr Singh. that's a pretty big mouthful and and I can honestly say that i'm I'm still not ready to start calling twitter <laughs> x, but the world of social media has me has me wondering which 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 end is up uh, with all the channels. How are you doing today man
0: i'm good man i i I have not logged into my Threads account in over a week now, and I don't know whether I. You're supposed to call it tweeting, xing. Are we xing? I yeah. don't know. Is that?
1: We're going to need gonna... new terms. Those because that <laughs> one just sucks. <laughs> I mean,
0: <laughs> imagine, imagine. Well, separate to- topic for later. But what do you think the weekend was like at Twitter? I mean, it, it the whole thing just seems so spur of the moment. It's like a tweet came out on Friday, and then Sunday night the logo is appearing on the website, and it's like what. What were all these poor employees doing for the week?
1: <laughs> right, right. Uh, this is
0: more nervous <laughs> laughter. I'm like, have I been wasting too much time? I mean, that guy just changed the name in a day.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But also threw away like a decade's
0: worth of brand equity. But let's let's see. I mean, I don't know. Uh, love him or hate him, it's hard to bet against the guy. So we'll see.
1: Yeah, and uh, and as a as a brief segue to how you can find us, you uh, you can find him on uh, Twitter or X. Uh, potentially threads, but we're not sure. Facebook, LinkedIn, you know, and and maybe some others that shall be named at Paul Singh, and on all of those platforms and whatever names they come up with, you can find me at Pizza in Motion. You can email questions to the show at show at resultsjunkies.com. dot com. So let's let's talk about SaaS pricing because before you sent this article to me that we'll link to in the show notes, I I had been looking at this and, and trying to, to make heads or tails of it as well. And so setting this up, the, the article that you sent was talking about how some, some large SaaS providers, Slack, Shopify, um, Google Workspace, Salesforce, had all raised prices. And we actually saw the Google Workspace increase internally for us because we switched from Rackspace to Google Workspace, which you talked about in the show you know, about a year ago. And then it's not just those sort of B2B plays. But we also saw Spotify come out and increase their pricing. Disney has talked about increasing pricing for streaming services. And so we've seen B2B increases here, which I think are maybe a little bit more expected, but also consumer B2C plays and in a, in a very interesting and challenging environment.
0: Yeah. You know, I I posted something about this before I saw this article pop. I posted something about this a couple of days ago on my own channels about this idea that I think that SaaS pricing is is going to go to zero. And, and I know that sounds a little, you know, hyperbolic or whatever, but the reality is I think, I think look, I think that it's, it's interesting to see such a large list of companies raising prices. And I think, you know, the, the thing to consider here is, is like they're, what they're all doing is, is testing price elasticity. You know, what, how much will a, a customer be willing to absorb? And I think that, you know, some of these folks have gotten away with it. Right. Maybe with a couple of grumbles and stuff like that. But some but Toast, who's on the list, also got like this backlash from their from their customers. And and I think the CEO had to walk that back. So I, I guess what I'm just saying is I just think it's I get why companies have to raise prices. I get it. But at the same time, you know, given where we are in the cycle, the economic cycle right now, interest rates, you know, all the stuff you know, all that, it's like, you better add some serious, serious value if you're gonna if you're even gonna go down that path of raising prices. You're almost better off though, kind of going the other way. I think. I think. I don't know. I, I think like I'm gonna annoy a lot of my SaaS friends, and and I admit I've invested in a lot of SaaS as well over the last couple of years. I get it, but at the same time, I think customers are tired of being sort of thinned out. Like their margins are already thin, and now we're talking about thinning them out even further. It's just. The next year, or a year and a half, is going to be a wild ride for a lot of these companies.
1: Just two sassholes <laughs> sitting here talking about their investments. <laughs> and I, I want to—I really want to dig in on this Toast thing because, I, you know, I, I, you folks who listen to the show quite frequently will know, you know, I'm in the restaurant business. We don't use Toast, but Toast is a big player in the space. And so just just to dig into this a little bit, what Toast did was Toast rolled out a $0.99 cent fee per order over $10.00 for any order placed online through its platform. And this fee was to the consumer, not to the the restaurant. And so typically toast's fees are not paid by the consumer, they're paid by the restaurant, and then obviously the restaurant's passing them through in some form or fashion in terms of what they charge. The interesting thing here to me is, like we think about this model of folks who are ordering on DoorDash and Uber Eats and Grubhub, and smart consumers know they pay more when they order through those channels than if they order through the restaurant directly. They know they pay for delivery, they know that they pay some ancillary fees and, and all that's mixed in there. And, and so then you revert back here to Toast where, where Toast is really like the restaurant's point of sale system. They're not really supposed to be, you know, the online ordering piece per se because there's lots of online ordering pieces out there. So now taking all that here and, and zooming all the way out for a second and Toast being a massive player in, in, in this like upstart small business restaurant space, how much money do you think toast made last year? They're publicly oh, I, held.
0: I won't Google it. I don't know.
1: I, and I'll I'll give you a hint. Their revenue last year was just shy of three billion. Oh, wait, their Gross revenue. Okay. Gross gross revenue is three okay. billion.
0: And so then what do they do? They keep like a percentage of it or something?
1: Their fee model varies depending on which restaurants they sign up with. But yeah, generally speaking, there's a monthly fee and then there are some percentages depending on what services you opt uh, into from. I'll them.
0: just guess and say they made two hundred million dollars.
1: Your number is very close. Two hundred fifty-two million was what they lost what? last year. <laughs>
0: what? Uh, hi, I run a three billion dollar company, and I only lose two hundred fifty-two million dollars a year. Uh, how? How does that make sense? Talk me into this.
1: We'll see. Like you and I were talking about this thing from the SaaS aspect of having to raise prices. This is a company that has to raise prices. It was built in a in a place in time. Uh, that was a different sort of model, where it was growth at all costs, and now they're sitting here, and they're in a they're in a very different spot. And I, I mean, so the ninety nine cent fee goes away because of customer backlash, but they still have a gap to close, and, and a significant one. And they're going to have to change their model pretty significantly. And so, like where Toast was, just just for folks who maybe don't understand these softwares at an intimate level, like I do, just to just to to. To equate this to something that's more recognizable, Toast is to restaurants like Shopify is to small businesses who set up a, a payment portal. Shopify makes it easy. You know this. It's you know click 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 done, and now you can now you've got a, a, a you know a, a page to sell stuff on. And same thing with Stripe. Click 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 done. Now I can accept payments. Toast is that to the restaurant industry, and they have almost hundred thousand restaurants under contract. And they're losing money hand over fist. And they have to find a way to change their model. And that's going to mean passing costs on to either the consumer or the restaurant. And then ultimately that's going to trickle down to the consumer in a time when interest rates are at least staying where they are and potentially rising.
0: Or, or hear me out. Just humor me for 30 seconds. Or they could right side their costs in an aggressive way. (laughs) Like, like how many people actually work there? Do you know?
1: I don't. It's a good question. I don't yeah, know how I to I there. didn't mean to uh, derail your thought but process your here, but
0: I, I, but I know what I'm about to say is ironic given our, you know, our mutual backgrounds here, but like, isn't, like, okay, so, so the way I simplify this in my head is is that every business has unit economics or a unit level profitability and, and then business level profitability. And the mistake a lot of founders make if they raise money is they tend to like use some of that money to kind of go upside down at the unit level. In order to drive more market mm-hmm. share. So in this case, they might say, you know what? Like, I know I need to make a profit on every customer, but gosh, I need to do a land grab. I'll just use these venture dollars to not only keep my business afloat, but to, always, to also, also r- run the unit economics at a per customer level upside down. And then all of a sudden, they also then act surprised when they can't right side the ship. Uh-huh. And so like, that's kind of what's yeah. happening here, right? It's like, like... They're unprofitable at the business level. Okay, no surprise. But then to say, but then they're also unprofitable at the unit level. Like it sounds like at that kind of mm -hmm. those kind of losses, kind of seems like no Mm -hmm. customer is profitable for them in their current setup. I
1: wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. I mean, maybe some of the smallest of small. But um, I did. By the way, I did Google the number of employees, and so they have. You 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 hit a nail on a head here. They have just over three thousand employees, which seems like an awful lot for, uh, especially again. I hate to keep coming back to Elon, but you know, it, Twitter has whatever you know, fifteen hundred or two thousand employees now on a you know much larger revenue base. And in theory, you know, I mean, Toast has some intricacies, you know, changes to credit card processing, things like that that come up. So they do need engineers for for you know quickly changing technology. But to your point of of unit economics and whether they have profitable customers. So, and and I don't know this off the top of my head because I haven't looked it up, but like, you know, like their their claim to fame, Toast's claim to fame is sort of like, you know, hey, we can get you started for, you know, a hundred bucks a month or whatever. And then you're, you know, you use a couple iPads or whatever. It's not, you know, it's not robust technology necessarily. And you can get, you can get tech from them. You can bring your own. But for orders of magnitude, you know, like what I'm using in our restaurants costs us, you know, over $10,000 in hardware per restaurant to get started. And then on top of that, I've got monthly software costs that are, you know, way more than 100 bucks per month. And so, you know, Toast came to market saying that they were going to be significantly cheaper than their competition. And 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 if they're going to survive, we'll, we'll have to drift up much closer to what the large mainstream providers of point of sale charge. And so then your question becomes, if you're really not that much cheaper than your competition anymore, you know, do you go with the industry veteran provider who has been there for 30 or 40 years or do you go with the the young upstart like Toast? And, you know, I mean, they're going to win their fair share of customers, but they're not going to win on price anymore potentially. And that's another potential adjustment to their business model that's a a really interesting one to consider. I think
0: if I was a, and I'm vaguely familiar with Toast. It was, you know, it was running at about half the bars back in DC, or, you know, last year on that other project yeah. you were talking about. But, you know, if I had to be a betting person and kind of and guess where they're going to go, I, I would bet you one of two things happens. They're either going to have to right side their cost structure, as uncomfortable as that is, they're going to have to consider that, or they're going to have to think about, like, some sort of advertising model and potentially using some of the space on those receipts, whether they're digital or not, like, like they're going to become a bo- more of a media company of some sort because given iOS 14 and, you know, that old trope of, you know, when everything changed back in 2022 or whatever it was like those advertising dollars are still flowing. They, they may not be going to pay per click anymore, but they're still getting spent elsewhere. And I wouldn't be surprised if they go down the path of potentially, you know, Giving giving customers, giving their the toast customer the choice of, you know, it's, it's kind of like the Hulu model. Pay the higher fee and get no ads or pay the lower fee and we're going to show you some ads. I, I have a feeling it's going to go down that path. It's it's either going to be that or cleaning up their cost structure or maybe both, if I had to bet, but we'll, we'll see.
1: Yeah, and I think if I had to guess where I would say, you know, my, my, my personal opinion is I think that there is an avenue here, for, especially because the users of Toast are, are likely to be more technical in nature. They're newer restaurants, potentially younger you know, entrepreneurs, things like that, as opposed to old stodgy guys like me. So you may have hit on something there in that maybe it's not necessarily advertising per se, but maybe Toast can turn themselves into a loyalty company. Not worth saying Toast needs to recreate itself, but they obviously need to do something to, to increase revenue. Maybe it's, to your point, maybe it's finding ways to encourage Toasts customers to dine more frequently, bounce back offers, things like that, or ways to pull them off of Doordash and Uber Eats and Grubhub. Because I do think that's that right now is like the current, you know, Rosetta Stone, if you will, is like how do you how do you how do you bring that customer back in house? Because there's so much money going yeah. out, you know, out of yeah. the model. So customer retention, customer reacquisition, without advertising you know could be potentially you know very lucrative for them but it's a very different model
0: yeah yeah and you know the unspoken thing in this in this particular post though is that the vast majority of these companies that raised prices also lock their customers into annual or multi-year contracts so so what i think you're going to see here is 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 they they're really taking a bet that the economy may bounce back before the majority of those contracts renew a- as an example we have a I would say somewhat tangential competitor that, that, you know, kind of went back to their, like we had a lot of their prospect or a lot of their customers in our pipeline. And, Mm -hmm. you know, word on the street is they kind of went back to all the prospects blanket offered a 50% discount in exchange for renewal of the contract terms. It's a pretty big, deep discount. And then after a couple of weeks, lo and behold, announced on their blog that they've raised prices, you know, uh, you know, across the board. So, so like at face value, you'd look at it and you'd say, oh, well, they didn't, the, the, the customers absorb that cost. But the reality is they're locked into those terms. I mean, like toast, I mean, you, you probably know on the other side of it, like my understanding of toast is, you know, in exchange for that lower cost of entry and all that stuff, you are in fact getting locked into a year or multi-year contract. Anyway, a, a lot of these, I mean, Salesforce, same thing, HubSpot, same thing, you know, so it's not a dig against the companies, by the way. It's really just more of like a, maybe a a comment more for the founders listening to this is that like, if you look at that article and you say, gosh, maybe I should test raising prices. I'd be really careful about at least understanding uh, all the moving pieces here because I don't think it's going to stay this way. Like, I don't think, I think, I don't think it's fair to assume that customers just took those price increases, you know, weighing down. And so,
1: No, and some of the, I think some of the greatest innovation happens when price increases come into play because you, you start to figure out, you know, is there a cheaper product for what you're, what you're paying for externally? And in some cases, an entrepreneur says, you know, I, I looked around and didn't find a cheaper solution, so I'm going to go create one. I think that's part of what, part of how a high interest rate environment contributes to entrepreneurism and, you know, the founder mentality. You know, to your point, I think... I also think there's there's this path here, maybe a separation of paths. So, you know, when we talk about the companies that, that were, you know, that we referred to here, you know, I, I don't want to say that something like Toast is an optional service. I think that that's, you know, I mean, obviously every restaurant needs a point of sale system for sure, but I think as we look down this list, we, we know there are cheaper versions of Salesforce. You know, there are other CRM products that are out there. On, on the flip side, much harder to replace Google Workspace in a, a medium-sized business. Like that, that, that migration would be significantly more painful than potentially moving Slack or, or Salesforce. And so I, the thing I noticed when I looked at this list of prices that were in this LinkedIn post is that, and I, I remember this from our price increase, while the increase itself wasn't necessarily significant for us because we don't have a ton of users, from a percentage standpoint, If Google Workspace really did raise their prices 20%, I'm taking him at face value. I think that was roughly where it was. That's a pretty massive price increase for what I would say is the you know, equates to like a utility for my restaurants. Like, I can't turn off the water. I need that. You know, companies can't turn off the email service. They need that. And migrating it is costly, painful, and and a real productivity hog. And so it's just interesting to me that that happens to be one of the bigger price increases as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's gonna be interesting to just see where this all goes. Because I, I think that like, I really do think that pricing for SaaS is going to continue facing downward pressure. And the only people that don't want to maybe consider that idea are the ones that, you know, have a vested interest in it not going. down. <laughs> like, like, right? <laughs> and I get it, that's, that's rational behavior. But at the same time, it's like, you know, consumers demand more for every dollar they spend. And, and that's understandable. You know, it's like mortgages are up. Everything's up, you know? And so it's like, you know, in other words, I think two, three years ago, you could just test a price increase and not really worry about the repercussions of it, right? Zero interest environment, you know, money was just flowing around. Right. Nobody really cared. But now that playbook goes out the window. And I think now the question is, is which game do you want to play? Do you want to like figure out that serious question of what has to be true before you actually consider raising money, or I'm sorry, raising prices. In other words, what features have to be developed? What, what do you have to give to make this price increase kind of feel acceptable? That's, that's path number one. Right. And path number two is, what, what does your business need to look like if it started today with a deep understanding of today's economy, today's customers, today's technology, and no legacy baggage. I think it's worth at least having that conversation of that second, to- that second question there because it may lead you down the path of like testing out something that your competitors aren't even thinking about.
1: Well, and I, I, I know we want to talk on the other topic about real estate and, and tech employees. I just, but I, you said something that really triggered in my head there in terms of, you know, in a low interest rate environment and testing customers and, and traction and stuff like that. And I don't want to be critical of, of Toast because I don't, I don't really know anyone over there and, you know, big company, lots of smart people, I'm sure. But to your point, you know, I wonder what, I wonder what the path internally looked like in terms of saying, let's, let's tack on a very different sort of fee. So, like, they're a, they're a company that drives B2B revenue, and they made this decision to move to B2C revenue. And, then, and it ultimately failed in a big way here. But for a company that was, you know, that far from profitability, I would imagine that they probably had very long, serious discussions about a move. Like this, and I think it's to your point about in a low interest rate environment, you can afford to try things and iterate and A/B test and all this stuff. I wonder, you know, what the quote-unquote cost is for making this decision and having it be results-oriented. You know, clearly the wrong one.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't know the answer. I, I'd have, I, yeah, shooting from the hip. I don't know the answer there. I think I just okay. So given how Toast, my understanding from the article is that Toast then had to quickly walk back the price increase yeah. and. In hindsight, it's 2020. You know, we can armchair quarterback all day. I think the question becomes like, at what point do we see that sort of same rebellion, if you will, at somebody else's customer base? I don't think it's far off. I, I, I think there's enough grumbling already happening. Like, like in other words, you and I probably both know in our day to day life, some founder, somebody somewhere, at least once a day in our in our respective worlds, complains about something they currently pay for. You know, and sure. and so, so <laughs> I think the, the, the question here is, is like, you know, who's going to be the next one uh, who has an uprising in their customer base and, you know, that says, Hey, my margins are already thin. Why are you, why are you being tone deaf? And I think, again, I think the opportunity for operators today though, is, is to still f- try to play to win, but, but, you know, like spend a few minutes thinking about what your business would look like if it, if it didn't have that legacy baggage attached to it. You know, and I know that's easier said than done, but I don't know. I I feel like the existential question we all have to ask ourselves as operators is, is like, are we willingly going to just, you know, fight a war of attrition with whoever our competitors are, real or perceived? Or are we actually going to use a time like now to zig when everybody else is sort of not zagging? (laughs) And I know that's so cliche. I get it. I know it. Right. But I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I have a vested interest or maybe I'm too close to this, but it's like, You know, that's one of the reasons why we're, like, doubling down on our language internally at Strata. Like, zero for the software. The software, nothing, you pay for nothing other than the service. And it's a results service, right? It would keep 7% of whatever we collect. So, you know, it's it nets out to be cheaper for everybody migrating over. Like, you don't have to be a calculus 307 kind of person. It's like, this is arithmetic 101, (laughs) you know so anyway I but again I'm not trying to make it about strata I just think it's a bigger conversation for operators to have while they're listening to this is like what are we going to do here because SaaS fees I think are you're all if you keep playing the SaaS fees game you're always going to be at risk of somebody else there's always going to be somebody else cheaper faster better whatever and you got to ask yourself if you want to keep playing that game for the long term That's that's the big question
1: it is a big question for sure Let's, let's transition into this topic about about tech firms downsizing, and especially because I think you took it in a different way than I was ex- sort of expecting you to when we, when we uh, discussed it pre-show. So I'll tee this up and then, and, then, and then let you riff on it a bit here. So th- this is a, a New York Times article that we'll link to in the show notes, essentially talking about a mirroring of what we've seen in San Francisco, which is tech firms shrinking when it comes to office space in the city. A little bit of a different reason. You know, New York doesn't necessarily have the crime issues, the prevalent crime issues that San Francisco has. Not not to say that New York doesn't have crime, but it's not a it's not an impediment to business. It's a you know obviously a, a well connected city globally for meetings and and commerce and all that stuff. But large companies are downsizing their office footprint in and And what's ha- but there's there's sort of a knock on effect here, but you know what's happened is that now these big companies are sort of in competition with landlords because landlords still have space available, and these com- large companies have fully built out spaces available and then there's just this question of you know the world of if the offices are smaller then that that clearly means the workforce is more decentralized, and I'm gonna put a period there and stop and let you talk
0: i, I mean. I think this is such a complex issue, but I think, I think that, you know, we've talked a little bit about this in the past. I think that particularly for people that are thinking about raising money, you just need to understand that the people that have invested in the venture funds that you might want to raise money from, are, they're probably heavily, heavily over-indexed in real estate. And so this is probably affecting them. Like, like, in other words, when somebody like Google breaks a big lease, it's not just the landlord that gets hurt. It's all the investors that are in that you know, investment pool and those more often than not, in my experience, tend to also have a strong overlap with venture. Now, that being said, though, I think the other side of this, though, is that what what I think the bigger story here is more about the mismatch in speed. In other words, you know, real estate, landlords, things like that, they tend to operate on five to 10 to 20 year timelines. So when you think about going and leasing something from them, you as the lessor you know you're essentially taking a bet with this person for the next decade or two and historically that's always just been a you know for a landlord it's been a safe bet but now all of a sudden the alarming thing is is we're seeing large companies walk away from billion dollar assets you know and 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 that's huge and so that's i guess what we're, what i'm saying is we're seeing this big mismatch because companies have to adapt on the fly to their cost structures now you know like they they may not have enough cash to survive four more quarters if they don't do something drastic right and on the other on the other side of this you have you know commercial leases that tend to be multi-year often decade or more and that mismatch you know like in the electrical engineering world we'd sort of call that like an impedance mismatch and and like that's the that's i think what we're seeing here is that like you have an entire sort of asset class that was renting or leasing to to a customer base that thinks in tr- certainly much shorter timescales, so I know it's a mouthful, but I don't know. I, I don't think the story is like, you know, New York is suffering or whatever. I think it's really more like, hey, this was bound to happen. <laughs> you know, you know, like what, what, what? How are we surprised three years after the pandemic started?
1: Yeah, definitely shouldn't be surprised. Uh, you know, I I also wonder, you know for smart companies and I think this this you know this blends into you know what you're you know currently working on you know how you know, I think there's an opportunity for founders to take advantage of this decentralization in terms of appeal and and you talked a little bit about this in terms of how you're attracting employees and the questions that they're asking and I thought it was interesting when you shared with me pre-show just you know, the the sorts of things that I wouldn't have thought to ask as an employee. And cl- clearly I'm not an employee at the moment, but I thought it's interesting to hear what recruits are asking in terms of how they'll interact with other employees and when they'll see them and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So a little bit of background. We are pretty much all remote. You know, we we do have a small office down in Florida, just sort of a legacy thing and 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 roughly five out of our thirty employees work out of that office, partly because they're, they, they're based close to that office, but also partly because they're in roles that cannot be done remotely because of certain patient info and that sort of thing. So so again, we're primarily remote, you know, spread out across nine or 10 states now and stuff like that. And and so I've been recruiting a lot over the last couple of weeks. And one of the interesting anecdotal things that's come up is that the best candidates tend to throw a question out there of like, hey, what what does travel look like? even though the even though the job offer or job posting says you know no travel fully remote or whatever the best candidates are still asking about this and I would say 60 to 70 percent of them are asking this of me is are you guys meeting up annually or more often you know and 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 is that an option because I just sometimes want to get out of my house and I just I was sort of surprised by that question because I didn't I've never really heard that before you know a decade ago and and I think that like you know, this is a broader topic, but I think that like there used to be this. So prior to COVID, if you were a remote company, I think the reason you would, you would, or the how you would defend yourself to all the people that say you shouldn't go remote is you'd say, well, it's cheaper to hire somebody elsewhere. Like there was this sort of geographic arbitrage that was happening. You know, like if an engineer in New York City cost 200K, just hypothetically a decade ago, that same engineer, that same skill set in, I don't know, rural colorado could be you know 75k with with similar lifestyles just given the cost of living uh, difference between those two geographies i think where we are now three years past the pandemic and all that stuff right is that the cost arbitrage does not exist anymore at the highest level of the employee talent pool in other words you can definitely arbitrage geography if you're going for junior level entry level roles sure you can but it's probably not very defensible. But at the top of the pool, that really great candidate in Virginia Beach or Idaho that knows that they're like national level talent, they're going to want national level salary or, you know, whatever, like they're not going to take that discount. And so, you know, one of the things I've been, what I was talking about in the pre-show is that like coming off of this two, three week recruiting stint that I've been on you know, one of the notes I made to myself was that when we get our, our leadership team together for the Q4 planning session in September, I think one of the conversations we probably need to have as a leadership team is sort of a a reflection on our current benefits packages and all that, because, you know, and, and, and it's possible, I haven't talked to my, my team yet about it, so I'm not trying to like, you know, shove something on them by surprise, but I think, it's worth this conversation, and I think it's worth anybody listening to this that's going to be hiring over the next year to have this thought with, or this discussion with your team. It's at least worth the conversation of, are we competitive to the type of, are, are, are our benefits, are, is our overall compensation package competitive at the level of employee caliber that we want? And that last part of the, the sentence is the part that I think that a lot of people don't think about. They, they think about their benefits in the vacuum. Of like, well, in our industry, it's X or it's always been this way or whatever. And I think that the tricky part of that is, is that not doing anything may end up being damaging to your your future recruiting effort. So so another way to say this, though, is is like, it's hard for me to feel sad for these landlords in New York, (laughs) you know, to, to actually own the, the, you know, skyscrapers and stuff like that and buildings that are a hundred years old, like, you know, you, you weren't probably weren't poor to get into that line of work. So, so I'm sorry if I don't feel, but at the same time, I think what we're seeing here, the real story is sort of the reset between the speed at which real estate operates and the speed at which companies have to operate. Cause look, people still are going to have an office. Like we still have an office. It just so happens. We don't need a 45,000 square foot floor plate on the 57th floor. <laughs> you know? right so 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 i don't know like we'll we'll see where this all goes but i think that longer term it'll all be just fine it's not like those buildings are gonna get knocked down i bet you those big floor plates are gonna get broken up into much smaller units
1: well maybe to some degree i mean if it's already built out though and, there, and it's a sublease because remember some of these are the, the tenants haven't given it back yet they're still hold the lease
0: i mean doesn't that just sort of di- okay so if i'm tracking what you're saying doesn't that sort of imply that some other company that's just as large in terms of headcount will come along and say, "I will sublease this from you"?
1: Well, not necessarily, though. So the, the way I think about it is, so like Hudson Yards is one of the centers that they talk about in this article, which is a you know large newer complex in in Manhattan. So Hudson Yards has you know complete empty floors that folks could lease, and then that Google or at Alphabet it has you know whatever a couple floors or Meta or whoever that they they could they at and that space is is furnished. And clearly if you if you if you subdivide it then you're you know then you're sort of you know committing to a choice. So I think if you're if you're a real estate agent and you've got this space from a meta or someone like that, I think you're I think you're coming up with concepts. So like if you think about you know co-working as a concept, like they might say like let's turn a floor into a coworking facility. So like they would find ways to pitch it to the market based on what they think is available there. And in those instances, I think they could be more well-positioned than the landlord in that, you know, if a whole floor is already built out with desks in a quote-unquote similar to co-working environment, Google can obviously quicker or Meta can quicker get to market with that product because they've already got the infrastructure there. Whereas if they start splitting it up and subdividing it, then you have to know, you have to, have to have some intent for whatever it is that next thing is that you're building.
0: Okay, so this might be larger than the scope of this episode, but just, just to throw it out there, like, if you kind of try to, if you so this is so complex, but maybe we try to come at this from a first principle standpoint. So I'll just put you on the spot. If I put you on the spot and I said to you, on the whole, over the next 10 years, do you believe that employee headcount at average companies will go down versus up what would you say
1: do i think headcount at average companies will go down L- or like up
0: let me rephrase let me over the yeah, next let 10 me rephrase years. the question do you think that companies will get as big as they used to be in terms of headcount in order to drive the revenue like let, let me say this a different way in the old days market size and all that stuff sort of determined how big of a team you would need to capitalize on that. And then lo and behold, that's kind of why venture capital came into existence, right? Because sometimes you would need large amounts of money to get into these industries. But when we look at the last couple decades, overall employee productivity has skyrocketed. I and mean, you can look at almost any economic sort of forecast and you can see that worker productivity by almost every metric is like 10X, 20X, 30X over the last couple decades. So really what that's, what that's kind of, I think, speaking to is this idea that, like, for every year that goes by, you need less and less headcount to achieve the same amount of economic footprint, if you will.
1: Right, and you, you, you hit it on there, and I think it's, and, I, and, and as I remind you, I, I want to loop back on one thing that you said earlier about the cost of an, of an employee, but, but let's finish this point. To your point, it's not necessarily headcount, I think, it's this coupling, this metric. So like, and not not that this is the right term here, but like one of the terms that folks use for software licensing is PUPM, you know, per user per month cost. Here, I think to your point, I think headcount per unit of measure, whether that's dollar of sales, customer, whatever. I think those will continue to get more efficient for the best companies. But I also think that if you figure that, if you figure that out, if you find the secret sauce. Then your headcount probably does go up, and it's funny because this goes to an article that I put in our our chat and then said let's not talk about it. It was about Spotify and their user growth, and I was saying you know how it's interesting that Spotify is growing in in a in a a tough economic environment. Well, turns out it seems like they're taking share from Pandora, who's losing customer share. So you know if Spotify has it figured out, they probably will increase headcount if they can keep increasing subscription count. But instead of hiring one employee per 10 new customers, just making up a metric, they'll likely hire the next employee one per 20 or one per 50 or one per 100. But to your point, if they figured out the secrets off for growth, they likely will continue to grow headcount, in my opinion.
0: Maybe. The, the broader question over the long term and maybe the next episode is, is like, what, what should revenue per employee look like? Because it seems to me that over the years it's gotten bigger and bigger. Like I saw... I'll find this, but I have a buddy Matt Paulson who I met on the tech tour who owns a company called Market Beat in Sioux Falls, and he tends mm-hmm. to publish his his company's revenue and stuff like that on on Twitter and LinkedIn and all these things and and I, I forgive me, Matt, if you're listening like if i if I misquote this, but I bet I think that I can recall like a recent tweet he put out there that you know he's doing something like twenty five thirty million dollars with thirteen or fifteen employees, and that doesn't make him like greedy or anything like that. It just I think it kind of makes him smart because he's sort of leveraging technology to, to, to like, like, I guess what I'm just saying is that I'm sort of pushing back on your comment that if you see it, you you said something along the lines of, if you see something that's working and it's in a big enough market, then maybe this, the headcount does increase. Like that's kind of, I think, where you're going with that. And, and that may be true for some industries where, you know, like a burger is not going to serve itself, right? Somebody's still got to flip that thing on the uh, May maybe not with robots. I don't know. But the, the, the point is, <laughs> yeah, the point is though, is that like I think for some industries though, we're almost at the point, if we're not already, of decoupling um addressable market size from headcount. And and I think that, you know, that that I don't know that I'm gonna be right or wrong about unless we look at this in hindsight in a couple of years. But I I, I don't know. I, I just think back to the Tying this back to this conversation of real estate, if we come at this from a from a first principle standpoint, these sub these, these lease lessers that are waiting to sublease the space to somebody else, it's sort of predicated on this idea that there's somebody just as big that's willing to, t- to spend just as much for a lease that might have been negotiated two, three, four years ago. That's a pretty dangerous bet, I think. How many other companies are there like this? I mean, this is kind of like the Rust Belt, you know, 20 years ago. It's like, you know, you and I went to the tech tour and we stop off in a lot of these tech or rust belt places and you'd see these massive old factories and stuff that probably should have gotten knocked down or repurposed for other stuff. But somebody somewhere is just hanging on to them, hoping that the next factory comes in and takes it because Lord, uh, Lord help us. It's already set up for the next you know, manufacturer that wants to come in. That,
1: remember that old factory building that Crystal yes. was involved in 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 Fort Wayne, like that. Like, yeah, they were they were putting co working facility. To, I don't remember what that building was from a manufacturing standpoint, but that was a an example of something. Yeah. that it was way past when it was at its highest yeah. and best. Yeah, use. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Actu- absolutely. And I think I think it's just I don't know how to articulate this other than to say that I think putting aside all these articles about real estate and you know the people walking away from leases and stuff, I'll bet you that there's actually I bet you that that commercial real estate is in a much more dire situation right now than, than we all are reading about because the the way that industry works and the way the economics work and the way the deal structures are written, those things take 10, 20, 30 years for like the impact to really be you know, felt. The way I usually talk about this in the venture world is that like founders operate at the speed of the market, right? Like, they see an opportunity, they start a business. The, the opportunity dies off, business dies off. Like they operate at the speed of the market. On the other extreme, LPs are operating on decade logging agreements with a GP. And that there's a right. huge impedance m- mismatch there. And it's been that way for, you know, 50 plus years. But that's kind of like what we're seeing in, in this real estate world. Is that like you have these like real estate people that are thinking like, well, you know, I've already spent all this money or whatever, like, that's not enough justification. Why should I, let's just use strata as an example. Like even if I wanted to go to New York city and even if I wanted to go get that sublease from Google or whatever, right. Assuming that we were big enough to even justify it. Chances are that the lease terms of that thing that I'm going to sublease from Google is still based on some set of numbers pre pandemic, you know, that, somebody, mm-hmm. that some broker is going to try to convince me is going to put me in the black over the course of 20 or 30 years. And it's like, no, I'm good. There's plenty of other real estate now. I'll just go somewhere else. <laughs> you know, like, I, I yeah. don't know. It's poorly articulated, I realize. But I just think there's something bigger happening here. And we're just not reading about it because nobody's hiding it. It's just that the time scales are so different.
1: Yeah, they are. I want to loop back on one other thing you said. And I know we're going long, but I, I just... I want to throw out this point for founders of something that we did during the pandemic, that could be a, a piece of the playbook now. And you said, you know, hey, back in the day when the you know metaphorical engineer in New York City was two hundred thousand dollars, you know, maybe you could hire him for seventy five thousand in you know Fort Collins, Colorado, and how that gap has 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 closed significantly. I I will say in this specific moment, one of the things that we did in the pandemic in in Vegas when everybody laid off, like all the casinos laid folks off you know, because they weren't open, we went out and market and we grabbed some really great seasoned restaurant veterans and folded them into our team. And some of them didn't work culturally and some of them did, but we got a trial period, if you will. You know, you get like that 99 cent offer from Paramount or Hulu or whatever, try us out for 30 days for 99 cents. I think that there's that potential same opportunity where we brought in these restaurant veterans during the pandemic and we were able to hire them at a salary that was closer to what our comfort level was versus what maybe the casinos were paying them. What we found was to keep them, we did have to ultimately end up paying them what a casino would pay them when the casinos ramped back up. But we got this sort of trial period at a lower salary to figure out that that person was a cultural fit. And to that point, I think we're in a time and place with a lot of the layoffs that have happened and potentially some of this decentralization where You might be able to bring someone in right now when the market is softer. You might be able to bring in a higher level of talent than you might have otherwise been able to bring them in. The important lesson that we learned for brick and mortar is the lesson that I would say founders should learn now, which is if you bring that person in, when the market rebounds, you're going to have to get them to, quote unquote, market or above to keep them. So don't bring them in thinking you're going to be able to keep them on that lower level forever. It's bring them in, see if they're a culture fit, try them out. And then when you figured out that they are an integral part of the operation, you do have to start moving them up to be competitive with New York and San Francisco. But you might have an interesting trial period right now in the market where the market lets you lets you get that really key piece and see if they're a cultural fit for the yeah, next year. Yeah, or absolutely.
0: Maybe. Could work. I mean, I think, I think, you know, topic for maybe we tie this to the next episode or something. Is it like I think that, you know, you should probably be doing an exercise of your employee base. You know, like one of the confidential exercises I think everybody should do once a year at least is you write down all your employees' names, right? And you sort of rank grade them, A, B, C, D. And, and you know, A, obviously these are all subjective, but really an A player is somebody that you're like, uh, if I move to my next company, who would I take with? That, that's a good you know, proxy for like an A player. Right. And and the reality is like wherever your A players are, you probably need to kind of like have that hard to- conversation internally every year about are you actually providing them with a with a competitive opportunity or competitive compensation? Because to your point, there's very little arbitrage on 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 compensation over the long term. You know, you know, somebody you think right. can pay less now is is going to find out eventually. But then on the other side, like. The longer somebody's been with you, the more valuable they are. The more expensive it is, both directly and indirectly, if something were to happen and they left, you know, and, and, and I think it's just worth having that conversation at least once a year with your leadership team, you know, and, and I don't know. I This whole real estate thing is just wild to me, though, because like the good news is, is that people are still going to need someplace to work and meet and gather, you know, wherever they're at over time. That is it's not like office space is going to go to zero, but I think. The thing that makes this conversation so interesting or this part of the conversation so interesting is that these existing real estate age, real estate landlords are sort of hanging on to this hope or these existing players, I should say. Landlords, right. lease-lessers, whatever. They're all hanging on to this hope that everything will come back to where it used to be. And in the venture world, we'd never accept that, right? Like if one of your founders said to you like, hey man, like, I just need one more bridge round to get me to the next customer. Like, trust me, <laughs> it's gonna work. You'd be like, come on. <laughs>
1: And, uh, Toast just needs one more bridge round, man. One yeah. more bridge yeah,
0: round. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Man, if they'd only done forty-nine cent increase as opposed to ninety-nine cent, that's the problem. That was right. sarcasm, by the way. Anybody that heard that, that was total sarcasm. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, let me let me pause there. You, I know you're on vacation this week, as as evidenced by the curtain behind you.
1: Yes. Yeah. You like that, huh? Yep. We are in rural Maryland, Deep Creek, Maryland. So we are the the world tour still continues. though, by the time you and I record again, or by the time we publish again. I'll have, I'll have done a quick Disney trip, gone to Kansas City for work, and then be on my way to Denmark. So, it got a pretty busy week. It's
0: <laughs> ridiculous, That's, like I'm, I'm exhausted for you.
1: <laughs> I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Just to, to the true horrific nature of it, uh, of the travel schedule, I come back from Disney and I will literally have my second suitcase in the car. And I'll put the family in the car and grab the other suitcase and walk back into Dulles and hop on my flight to Kansas City. I don't even have enough time in between flights to Good go home.
0: Good for you, man. Good for you. Well, <laughs> I, I, I will live stuff. vicariously through your Instagram reel.
1: preceding was produced in association with Crooked Path Productions